Hello, you're listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. Today, we're going to hear from Julia Parsons. Julia Mary Potter Parsons. A few months ago, Julia turned 100 years old. Happy belated birthday, Julia. Happy birthday. One of the things that's really interesting about Julia's interview is how she presents this contrast to what we normally think about when we think of World War II. The war was this tragedy in our history, the Holocaust, deaths, destruction of cities. And Julia is talking about that time in her life as full of learning, gaining skills, and meeting new challenges. She talks about meeting people, living in different cities, and experiencing air conditioning for the very first time. It's an interesting contrast and fun to hear about this time in her life. Julia grew up in Pittsburgh, in the Oakland neighborhood, before her family moved out to Forest Hills. Her father taught at Carnegie Institute of Technology. Being a faculty child, I could go to Carnegie Mellon without look to Carnegie Tech. <laughs> I keep teaching myself to say Carnegie Mellon. We didn't have to pay anything to go, which was uh, the only reason I got to go to college, I'm sure. Julia went to Carnegie Tech in 1938. In addition to her studies, she worked on the staff of CMU's student-run humor magazine, The Scotty. Her courses were within the Margaret Morrison Carnegie College, which was an all-women's school. We were limited to courses there. We could take some courses in the Fine Arts Building. I think I took a French course over there, and I took an economics course in the Industries Building. Otherwise, we were strictly in the girls' school. There weren't any boys in the girls' school, but once in a while, in, in one of the classes, I remember there being a boy. But everybody stayed to their own groups for the most part. It was a not segregated exactly, but women were not allowed to be engineers, which is what I wanted to do. I liked math and I was good at it. That was out of the question. I don't think anyone ever heard of a woman engineer in the, in the 40s. We were stuck with uh, household economics and uh, secretarial work, uh, clothing design, that kind of thing. I took the course of least resistance and did the uh, general studies course hoping something would crop up, and it did, so. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. On December 7, 1941, 353 Japanese aircraft attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. The attack was part of a larger effort that saw Japanese forces attacking the Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island. Parts of the British Empire were also attacked. The U.S. declared war on Japan. After Germany and Italy declared war on the U.S., the U.S. also declared war on Germany and Italy. 
So do you remember where you were on December 7th, 1941? Yeah, I was home. I had a friend that was her birthday and I was going to her house for uh, to take her birthday present. I was heading down Ardmore Boulevard and I heard this on the car radio and I thought, where the heck is Pearl Harbor? I had never even heard of Pearl Harbor. And it, it never dawned on me how it would change our lives so completely, but of course it did. The attack apparently was made on all naval and on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Julia graduated in April of 1942. It was a big occasion as her sister received her master's degree and her father retired all at the same graduation ceremony. They pushed this ahead a month because the army wanted the men. They wanted the ROTC men and so they eliminated our final exams that year, which was lovely, and pushed the graduation ahead about a month. Everything changed because of the war, both in Pittsburgh and also in Julia's life. Well, everything changed because the, the boys left. They left, period. Pittsburgh was stripped. <laughs> there was just nobody left. And I had a, an offer of a job with Army Ordnance, which I took Marfield Apartments in uh, Squirrel Hill. They took over an automobile display room and uh, painted the windows, and uh, that's where we had the lab. And that was nice. That's I got to see the uh, Rosie the Riveters at work. We we were checking gauges from the steel mills, gauges that were used to measure the shells that the mills were turning out. So we finally got in a steel mill, which women never were in. This was not considered good at all, but that's where I saw my Rosie the Riveters working. And they were there, they looked just like the uh, picture. The bandana and the, uh, whatever, they did a good job. It was fascinating because I'd always wanted to see in a steel mill. Julia read in the paper that the Navy had opened its doors to women. In the book Code Girls, author Liza Mundy tells us that thousands of women were recruited from elite schools and trained in secret to become codebreakers for the U.S. Army and the Navy. Carnegie Tech wasn't included in that recruitment effort, but Julia applied to the program after graduation, and she was accepted. Soon after, she took a train to Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, for three months of training. We studied ships, the outlines of ships, so you could recognize silhouettes, you could recognize a destroyer from a minesweeper, whatever. We did do some teletype training, a lot of history, naval history, a lot of physics. We were separate from the girls that were going to school there. Nancy Reagan was there when we were there, but I didn't know, I didn't know Nancy Reagan, so. <laughs> It was easy living. The food was delicious. They had a super duper chef there for the food, and that was good. I had my first lobster there. I had never liked fish. And I can remember passing it by saying, I don't like fish. And everybody said, Take it, I'll take it. <laughs> so we had whole lobsters served to us and uh, lovely meals. It was very nice. After training, Julia went to the Mount Vernon Seminary in Washington, D.C which the Navy had taken over to house their code-breaking headquarters. Uh, that's where we were sent. Then we sat in this uh, little chapel waiting to be assigned a place. 
And someone came in and asked if anybody had taken German, and I raised my hand. I said I had a couple of years in high school, and so I was sent immediately to the uh, German section, and and that's where I spent the rest of my Navy career. <laughs> so and we lived in the barracks there. They had barracks for the girls. I had a picture of the officers' quarters there. They were just temporary buildings, and all the buildings were what you would call quick temporary buildings, and they're all gone, of course. We stayed there for um, six months, something like that. Then they said we had to get out because they needed the space for other people coming in. So we found an apartment. One of the girls that I had roomed with at uh, Smith, I took an apartment in uh, 33 Q Street. So that was nice. We did a third floor walk up. After about a year there, we, we moved to another apartment, which was closer to work girl that I lived with, roomed with, was uh, from Cleveland. She was in the Japanese section. Margaret Sanford Parsons, she married a man named Parsons also. We were both married in uh, Washington to somebody named Parsons, no relation. Julia's work for the Navy involved locating German submarines. I'd say we, we just did the, the German submarine traffic and it was odd because we, we, they were the enemy, but we got to know them so well. Can you tell me a little bit more about the messages? What were they like? Well, most of them were, were documents, uh, things that came through. What were interesting were the personal ones that came through. You know, happy birthday, uh, you have a new son, uh, that kind of thing in German. I didn't do the decoding, you could tell. I could read a little bit, but they had specialists who did that. That was always interesting to hear them because they, they were people just like we were. They were doing their bit for their country and they were, uh, we got to know some of them pretty well and it was kind of hard to pinpoint them because you'd never hear from them again. That was the end. You know. This was all through the uh, Enigma machine, through the code work, and no amount of training could ever set you up for, uh, I'm thinking that code girls, they imply that because the girls got all this training, it helped them. It didn't. That it wouldn't help. The Enigma is strictly a, a uh, machine. The Enigma machine is a cipher device. It was used by the Nazis to encrypt military communications. The machine uses an electromechanical rotor mechanism to convert the 26 letters of the alphabet into something called cipher text. So, if you enter plain text on the Enigma's keyboard, corresponding ciphertext would appear on the machine's lamp board. Someone would then write it down. This transformation of plain text to ciphertext is accomplished by the rotor mechanism changing the electrical connections between the keys and the lights with each key press. Now, if you want to try out an Enigma machine, there are a few emulators online where you can set system parameters and type in a message. This was invented by a man from Poland who tried to sell it to Germany, as I remember the story, and they didn't want it. Someone else took it, and eventually the Germans did take it, and they assumed that nobody could break it, which was a big advantage for us because they thought that Anytime they had any doubts that we were reading their code, they kept saying it's unbreakable, you can't break it. But in the meantime, the British had been lucky enough to 
capture a submarine. It was sinking and the captain ordered the men off. They all got off and were rescued and put somewhere out of sight. And then the British soldiers ran on board and grabbed the Enigma machine, which should have been thrown overboard, and the code books. And the code books were what uh, finally got us through. But they were only good for three months. And that was before I got into it. I wasn't there at that point. By the time I got there, uh, we had several ways of finding out where the submarines were because they were decimating the U.S. Navy. The convoys were just, they just wiped them out. Millions of tons of war equipment all going to England on the Lend-Lease program. And here would appear the wolf pack, as they called them, a whole bunch of submarines. And they could wipe out the whole convoy. It was just pathetic. So when we finally got a glimpse of how this thing worked, how this machine worked, the only thing we could do to break this code was to work it backward. We would get all the copies of their messages through Europe, through France, through wherever the radio stations were that picked them up. England did all sorts of things, but, but the uh, submarine bit was ours. It was strictly U.S. At any rate, all the messages from the submarines came to us and we would then transcribe them onto a sheet of paper and run through what we thought they might say. But this, this was a pretty iffy thing because there was no way that a letter put into the Enigma machine would ever come out of the same letter. All these wheels that they had, and I think we had a four wheel, it would go in one letter and come out another and then the next wheel, it would go in another letter and come out another. So there was no way you could trace back. But it would never come out itself. An E would never come out an E. And that was our biggest help in trying to decide what was being said. We called it crashing. If, if an E in our little uh, thing fell under an E, we knew that wasn't right. It couldn't be. And another way was when the submarines would be, they had to come up to the surface to recharge their engines. And when they did, then they would call back to control and say, I'm missing messages uh, 824 through 817 or whatever. Control would only repeat the messages that were important. They wouldn't repeat the dummies or the personals or uh, weather reports, things that were not of any value. And this was a great clue for breaking that day's traffic. Toward the end, and this is where I was uh, fortunate, we couldn't break the code. We'd gone for maybe a week or so, and this was bad because uh, one, of, one of my wave friends had a husband who was in convoy duty all the time, and she kept running in every five minutes saying, have you broken the code? Max out again. I know he's out because he didn't call home last night. So she knew that another convoy was on its way. It was just so frustrating. There was nothing we could do. You know, you hear it's all this stuff and you know it's all there. And Anyway, uh, somebody came in and said, how about somebody doing a spreadsheet on all the messages for the last month or two? So I wasn't doing anything. I said, I'll do that. So I did. And we got messages, dozens of them, day after day after day, and we put them all on a chart. And all of a sudden, this one stood out at the bottom. For us, it was... Uh, 
giving the weather in the Bay of Biscay, and the Germans had gotten careless. They didn't bother to recode like they should have done. They didn't bother with the dummy words. They didn't do, and they worded the message every night the same way. The weather in the Bay of Biscay until Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whatever day will be. And that was enough of a crib to break the traffic. But then we had to wait till night before, <laughs> before we could get the, uh, get the word through on that. That was our biggest help. And the only time that didn't work, they worded it exactly the same every night. All we had to do was change the day from Montauk to, you know, Sontag, whatever it was. They spelled Biscay with a K at one point, and we couldn't get, we couldn't break the traffic that day. After the war was over and everything was open and clear, we checked back and we found out that was why we couldn't, couldn't do it that day. The war was almost over and there was nothing left to be done. Now here are all these people trained to read the codes and take over and there's nothing, nothing to be done. Something that really stands out about her interview is her story about the Bay of Biscay, which you just heard. As she's telling me about how she got the assignment to create a spreadsheet of recent messages, and they finally, as she said, broke the traffic, it took me a moment to realize what she was telling me. She played a major role in this historical moment, but she says it so nonchalantly. It was part of her job, it was her duty, and this speaks volumes about her character. So how did you feel about the work that you were doing? I was very proud of it, just fascinating. So as I say, I was both proud of it and I felt a little sorry afterward for, I guess everybody does who has a hand in killing somebody else, even if it's a remote connection. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. This episode concludes our first season. We'll be back in season two with more stories from the Oral History Program. See you next time. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. All oral histories are available within the university archives housed in the Carnegie Mellon University Libraries.